Brookridge Church, a sister church, preaching Christ in Haverhill, uh, up the street, actually the former owners of this building, and by the way, we closed on our building, we now own our building here. And it's wonderful to, to see what God's doing in Haverhill. Brookridge Church, out in front of their church, they have large gifts, uh, big packages that look like Christmas gifts, and then the phrase, which I like, it says, it's not your birthday. And what can happen at Christmas time is we think it's our birthday that we're celebrating, and we're more excited about the gifts we may get, the attention we may get, or the comfort we might receive somehow, and not necessarily anything wrong with that, but it's not your birthday. It's not my birthday. This day this season is about Christ and his birthday and the wonder of that. And so this message is geared to rescuing Christmas from selfishness, rescuing Christmas from a self-centered view. And so we're going to look at the story of the Magi, the story of the three wise men. And we're going to see in this story, actually, this is not just a story of three wise men. This is actually, more importantly, a story of two kings. It's a story about two kings and, and the contrast between these two kings, and uh, we already heard from the story earlier as we prayed this morning. This is a story about two kings, three wise men, and you. That's the point here, learning about two kings, three wise men, and you, and through this to learn to be like the wise men, to reject selfishness and follow the magi to worship the newborn king. So let's pray as we prepare to read God's word. And learn from it. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word, the power of your word, the comfort of your word, the ability of your word to transform us, the ability of your word to give us joy, the ability of your word to fill this season with ultimate, wonderful, glorious meaning. And we ask you, Lord, through your word, by the power of your spirit now, as we look at your word, to fill our hearts and our minds and our seasons with worship. Would you make us like the Magi who rejoice exceedingly with great joy at the birth of the newborn king? Would you grant us that ability through your word, through this time? Would you use me to serve this end, your people, your glory? We ask these things, thankful and expectant in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes, Of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, 
until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The Word of God, Matthew 2, 1-12. And the story of two kings, three wise men, and you. This story pre- presents a dramatic contrast. And, and we're familiar with this story. Perhaps we grew up hearing this story and, and there's perhaps a sense of quaintness to this story, but that's really not what this story is about. It's not about the quaint wise men and the manger scene. This is a story that presents a stark contrast between the heart and actions of the Magi as unlikely worshipers of the newborn king and the heart and action of King Herod, murderous, jealous, and selfish. And in that stark contrast, as God does elsewhere in Scripture, He, grant, he gives us this contrast so that it might serve as a mirror for us. That we might ask the question, what sort of worshiper am I? How do I compare to Herod versus the Magi? And in that, in that reflection, there is a call to be like the Magi. And that is my prayer for us this morning. Well, it starts out talking about the Magi. We are presented with these wise men. And we don't actually know if there are three or not of them. Uh, there are three gifts, but not necessarily three wise men. These wise men come from the east and elsewhere... Uh, in other translations, it uses the word magi. That's actually closer to the original word. And, and it was a word used for uh, wise men that were, were not just guys that were smart. That's not what it means when it says wise men. Uh, these were not just the smartest guys. These were, these were men who were a combination of, of experts and religious priests from their land, probably from Persia, probably from the east, meaning Persia, Babylonia. And if you know something of the history there, you know that they were very far advanced in astronomy. They understood the stars and the planets and their motions. But it wasn't, they weren't just scientists who studied the stars to, to know what went on with the stars and the planets. They also had, they put spiritual significance to the stars and the constellations. And so they were experts in astronomy and astrology. And they would have been influential men. They would have played very prominent roles in their land. They themselves would have been sorts of kings from their land. They were important political and religious figures. And it's interesting that they come to worship the newborn king. They come to worship God as man. And these are unlikely worshipers. These are unlikely worshipers. They, they are worshipers who, who worship astrology. They, they look to astrology. They look to the this zodiacs and the planets to determine what's going on. They're, they're trusting in planets and astrology, a, a practice that is explicitly forbidden in the scriptures. They lived, lived in a land full of polytheism and, and practices that were abhorrent to God and all his goodness. They lived among people that were largely exiled from God for quite some time. 
and yet they come as worshipers, unlikely worshipers, and this just adds to the contrast. These are just not people you would expect to be coming to worship Jesus, God the Son. They were men, though, that observed the stars. They watched what was happening in the sky, and, and they saw something. We don't know, actually, the details. We don't know what sort of star uh, formation they saw, and there's a lot of different speculation about what they saw. Actually, you can actually, uh, I have a program on my computer where you can actually reverse the star formations back to around that time, and, and as, uh, astronomers have done this, and it does look like Jupiter and Saturn came together very close at that point in time and, and were, would have been in the western sky for them at a certain time and actually would have been in the sign of Pisces. And uh, that probably means nothing to you, but, but at the time, their understanding of astrology and so forth, uh, the, each of these things represented something. Um, Saturn represented the Jewish people. Jupiter represented God, and Pisces uh, represented that area, the, the area of the Mideast where, where Jerusalem and Bethlehem was and is. So perhaps that's what was going on. We don't know. Perhaps they saw and they said, wow, we got... We got Saturn and Jupiter converging and within the sign of Pisces. So it must mean that a great king is born among the Jews. And so they came. That perhaps is what went on, but, but we don't know. We really don't know. It could have been other things. There, there could have been, a, and there was a supernova around the time, or a comet, or it could have just been purely supernatural. God could have sent an angel to shine in the sky for them to lead the way. We really don't know, and that's not the point of the story here, to figure out. Though you can have some fun thinking about the possibilities, that's not the point here to figure out what exactly went on. The point is that these men are unlikely worshipers journeying from afar to come and worship the Son of God, and they stand in stark contrast to Herod and the Jewish leaders who should have been coming to worship the king and instead do something terribly opposite of what the wise men do. Now also... Another thing that might have led the wise men is, is the knowledge of the scriptures because there was a sizable Jewish community in that part of the world, in Persia, and there was promise in Numbers 24. I think we perhaps have this to project. Numbers 24, 17, there is a promise. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. This was spoken by a, pro by a prophet actually from the east years and years earlier. Thousand over a thousand years earlier. So perhaps they were aware of that prophecy as well, and that informs them. But again, it's the, to point to the fact that these are unlikely worshipers. And, and there's a lot to learn in that. First, it's the contrast that's being set up that's to challenge us, us in our hearts about the Christ child. But also it points to the fact, and the scriptures themselves do this again and again, that God loves to reach the unlikely. He's a God of the unlikely. He's a God who reaches out and touches and grabs a hold of people who are unlikely people, who are not the sort of people that you would expect would follow him. Often, actually, the most likely ones are the ones who are most in danger of missing God because they think they have it together. They think they're religious enough or good enough, and therefore God should accept them. And God does not relate to us on those terms. There is no one righteous before him. He is holy and perfect, so far beyond us 
that it's actually ridiculous for us to assert that we are somehow righteous enough to somehow have leverage on God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you may not be as bad a sinner as I am, but before God we are so distant from his goodness and holiness that our hope cannot be in our own behavior and actions. So actually, actually often the likely ones are the ones who are most distant. And God loves to work in the unlikely, the ones that don't think they have anything to offer. Because they realize something that's true, is that you don't, in and of yourself. And he's a God of mercy and kindness. And there's story after story in the scriptures of him reaching out and touching the unlikely, who know that they're unlikely. And in that place of knowing they're unlikely, say, God, please have mercy on me, a sinner. My only hope is your mercy and your kindness. And this story reminds us of the fact that God reaches out and rescues the unlikely. He loves to touch the unlikely. And if you're an unlikely one here today, you're in a good place. Because he wants to hear from you. Saying, Lord, have mercy on this unlikely. Have mercy on me. Well, as we read through the story, we... Meet the Magi, we see what they're doing, and then we meet the antagonist of the story, Herod. And honey, can you pass me my, my cup of water? We meet Herod in this story. Thank you. And he's called a king here, and so he is. The whole context here of Matthew, and Matthew is a book about Jesus as king. And so mentioning Herod as king here once or twice or more is no accident we meet this king, this alternative king named Herod. And he stands in contrast, stark contrast to the real king. And if you read the story, you'll get to know the real king. You follow through in Matthew and see what he's like. You can look at the Old Testament and see the promises about this king, this king that is born a baby, and what he's like. He is so different than Herod. He is the prince of peace. He comes in mercy and grace. He comes to lay down his life. He gives his life away to save his people. But we see Herod who gives his people's life away to supposedly save himself. Totally different. Jesus walks in peace and in kindness and in truth. He reaches out to sinners who need mercy. He heals the sick. He rebukes those who are self-sufficient and proud. He is so different than Herod. And he goes to the cross, ultimately, to die a death that we deserved to die in our sin so that we can live a life that he deserves to live, so we can be forgiven and accepted and loved of the Father and have eternity with him. So he is completely polar opposite from Herod. Herod is a cunning and deceitful man, jealous and treacherous. History tells us that Herod had his own wife and two of his sons murdered, put to death, because he feared that they might somehow overthrow him. Caesar Augustus, the king of the Roman Empire at this point, said about Herod, I would rather have been Herod's pig than his son. And, and in the ancient language, pig and son the, the sound alike. And he's basically saying, you know, it was safer to be his pig than his son because he's so dangerous that he would kill his own children. So this false king 
stands in stark contrast to the real king. And when he hears about the birth of this king through the Magi, this great king, instead of doing what he ought to have done, following through in what he said, that he wants to know where he lives so he can come and worship and fall down and submit, we know in the story that his plan is to do quite the opposite. It's to kill this king. He's on the polar opposite of the Magi in this, in this way in terms of worship. He's the polar opposite of the king of kings himself, and he's the polar opposite of the Magi. The Magi go to Bethlehem to worship the king. Herod wants to go to Bethlehem to kill the king. Again, a stark contrast for us. Herod represents the polar opposite of the Magi, and Herod represents evil. And as we prayed and talked about it at a time like this with what went on on Friday, it is relevant to, to read the story. I had this text planned before the events of Friday. But we see with Herod an evil, evil man who so hates the king that he goes into to Bethlehem, sends his soldiers in. Once he knows that he's been tricked, the Magi are told to, to leave in a dream. Thank God and that Joseph is told as well to take his wife and the baby away and get out of Bethlehem before Herod comes in. And Herod comes in and he kills every little boy in Bethlehem and the surrounding region. Probably a minimum of 30 are killed, perhaps more. And this story, maybe at another point in time, would just be history to us. But it's more than history right now. It is real and raw and too close for comfort. This story and what went on last Friday, this past Friday, remind us that we live in a world full of really incomprehensible evil. It's hard to imagine the level of evil that went on on Friday. I don't even, I don't even want to go there. And it's hard to imagine the level of evil in the heart of this man, Herod. He would hate the king of kings to the point of wanting to kill him. It also illustrates to us that Christ comes and is born and lives amidst awful evil. He knows what he's getting into. And the circumstances around his birth and his early childhood are no accident. Him being born amidst such evil is a profound statement from God. That he has come to redeem and rescue this world from such evil. And this part of the story is only a beginning. But it, it shows us right away, right at the beginning, that, that he has come amidst horrible evil, terrible evil. And he has come to do something about it, to address it. He comes as a stark contrast to such evil. And we know not only from this story, but from the rest of the story, that he goes on to bring a real solution to such evil. And ultimately, that's what we need. At a time like this, 
The first answer that we want to bring, the first question that is asked by people in such sorrow is just simple, simply this, will you weep with me? Second is, will you be with me? And as I read, as we prayed earlier in John 11, that's what Christ does. That's the first and immediate answer that's needed, simply. But in time, what people in such sorrow need is truth. They need an answer. They need to hold on to something that's bigger than themselves and bigger than their sorrow and grief. And Jesus comes into the world to not only provide a divine shoulder to cry on, a divine presence to give us comfort, but a divine answer to evil in the world. He came into the world to vanquish evil. And the way he lived says some profound things about who he is and his commitment to do this. For we know the rest of the story that that he lived as a poor man who constantly sought to love his father and to love others. He lived and he experienced the temptations that are common to man and the evil that is common to society. But he went even further than that. He went to the cross. He voluntarily chose to be put to death by evil people. He suffered great evil. He was murdered. He was betrayed. He was abandoned. The one who the world should have recognized and loved and honored and followed and worshipped was ignored and abandoned and tortured. He knows what it is to suffer. But even more than that, he took upon himself the sin of the world. He took upon himself evil, the evil of people. And he bore the sins of the world on the cross. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 something incredibly profound that helps us understand what the Lord did, what Jesus did on the cross. I think we have this to project if we could. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, about what Jesus did on the cross, it says, For our sake, He, God, speaking of God, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin. On the cross, Jesus took upon Himself the sin of the world, the sin of His people, He took it upon Himself to the point where 2 Corinthians 5 says that that He became sin. For our sake, He made Him to be sin. God, the Holy One, became sin. He took upon Himself evil. He took upon Himself sin. And then, in partnership with His Father, according to plan, God in His goodness and holiness and and perfect justice, poured out justice on Christ for evil. And the most just solution to evil was accomplished on the cross. God brought full, perfect vengeance on evil as Christ bore that sin and evil. He poured out His wrath. And justice was satisfied In Christ, that truth must shape how we think about events like Friday. The worst evil was for Christ 
to bear our sins, but in that the greatest good was accomplished. That God satisfied justice in Christ. And that was not all. Because in that, there was a plan that through that, that God's justice could be satisfied so that God could forgive sin and forgive evil and forgive all those who would come to him through Christ and say, I'm a sinner and I live in an evil world and I need a rescue. And because Christ bore my sins and your sins, we can come and know those sins are forgiven. So that he could deal with evil. And more than that though, Christ through that death and through his resurrection now reigns. And through us, as his people, he brings his kingdom to bear in our world and addresses evil. And we as Christians are to address evil. We are to live as redeemed ones, bringing redemption, addressing injustices. But fully and finally, that justice will be done, that redemption will be done when he finally returns and vanquishes all evil and sin. He brings and will bring a new kingdom and a new way, and there'll be no more sin and no more evil. He will deal with it fully and finally. But that plan and that ability to do that flows from what he did on the cross. Flows from his death for sin and to vanquish evil. And so he can say, I am the resurrection and the life. And we can put our hope in him. And we can extend hope to others. We can tell them about a Savior who did suffer himself. And who took on evil in the fullness of it. And addressed it in his death. And now extends to us hope for forgiveness and hope for redemption in our lives and through our lives and for our world. There's no king like this king. And the Magi perhaps didn't know all of this, all of these details. We, we, we don't know all that they knew. But they saw something in Christ. Perhaps through the stars, perhaps through the scriptures. And they saw something about him that caused them to put their hope in him and caused them to make a great journey to, to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem to worship Jesus. And the call here is to be like the Magi, to recognize the stark difference between the King Herod and the King Jesus. To know that one brings hate and destruction and evil and one brings peace and redemption and the kingdom of God. To know that one is a usurper and a fraud and the other the true King of kings and Lord of lords. Come as a baby. This profound birth shaped the Magi and it's to shape us as well. So in our remaining time, let's just look at the Magi and look at what they do so that we can learn to be like the Magi, to be worshipers like the Magi. It says in the text, um, as it speaks of the Magi, it says something um, that I just love. It says, And behold, the star that they had seen rose and went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And then it says, When they saw the star... 
And we don't know, again, what the star was, whether it was an angel at this point. But when they saw the star, it says this, that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, it could have just said they were happy to see the star. It could have just said they rejoiced. It could have just said they rejoiced with great joy. But it piles up superlatives. It piles up adverbs here and adjectives to, to say they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. These guys were having a near out-of-body experience when they realized that, that this was the real deal and, and the star was ahead of them and they were going to meet this great king. What an example to us. These are unlikely worshipers. These are guys who are uninformed about the scriptures, probably don't personally know God. And yet, what do they do when the revelation of God is given to them? This star appears. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And they come in to the house at this point. This is probably uh, sometime after the birth in the manger. So the manger scenes are incorrect. Uh, it's kind of hard. I guess you'd have to have two scenes. You know, you'd have to have the manger scene and then the house scene and you know, the cows and the sheep and this one and the shepherds and that. And that would be confusing, so they just kind of morph them together. And so we all think that they came, in, well, they're in the manger, but no, they came later uh, because of, of, well, it says it. <laughs> it says that they were, were in a house, I believe. And, um, and also because we know that the babies were two years or so because of Herod's plan, terrible plan. And so these guys come, and they come into the house, and, and they, uh, it, it's really profound what it says. They, they rejoice with a uh, exceedingly with great joy. And it says, um, and going into the house, verse 11, and going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And what did they do when they came in there? They come into the house, they see the child with Mary, his mother. And what does it say next? They fell down and worshiped. Now, guys, these are prominent, distinguished men. And there might have been three of them. There might have been 23. We don't know. I think there was a whole entourage there. And they are there dressed in their finest. And they come in as dignitaries. And they come in, and there's a peasant child there, a poor family. They would have known right away. This is a poor family. These are nobodies. And yet they come, these dignitaries perhaps dressed in their finest, and they fall down. They fall down at the feet of the baby, and they worship him. They worship him. And again, these are unlikely worshipers. These are people who, who don't know much about what they're doing. And yet they give their all. They give everything. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. They fall down. And then they open up gifts. And these are royal gifts. These are expensive gifts. Sometimes people talk about these gifts, uh, the, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, and and as, you know, some sort of prophetic gift. But I don't think that's what this is about. Maybe. I don't think it's what it's about. They talk about gold representing the king and, and uh, frankincense and myrrh, I think, representing his, his death and burial. I, I, I don't think that's the point necessarily here. The point is that these are expensive gifts. These are expensive gifts. These gifts would have cost quite a bit of money. Perhaps $100,000, perhaps $100,000 each. And again, it's not to get into what exactly the price is. It's to get into the level of worship. These guys have brought their very 
best for the king. So they come in, they're rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. They come in, they fall down, they, they bow down, they humble themselves, they worship, and then they bring their very best. Here basically is my life savings for the king. That's the point. The point is their worship, the extent of their worship, the fullness of their worship, their heart of worship, and the contrast of their worship to Herod's worship. Herod's worship is no worship. Herod's worship is a worship of himself. Herod's worship is a false worship. Their worship is a true worship informed by how God used the stars and how God used the scriptures perhaps. It's a contrast, a stark contrast. And it's a call to us to ask ourselves, what sort of worshipers are we? Are we like the wise men? And in some ways, their, their example just should provoke us because we know so much more than what they knew. We know about the king. We know how great he is. We didn't just look at the stars and, and read a verse. We've read about him and studied about him, and we know him. And, and, and the more you know, the more compelled should you be, should I be, to worship, to admire, to rejoice exceedingly. I thought of, of just a, an analogy, an expression, of some, a picture of that. Um, think of it this way. The, the, the whole idea of the more you know, the more reason you have to worship. Um, and pardon me if you don't like football, but Tom Brady, if you heard that Tom Brady was a great quarterback, you might have some reason to think, well, that's kind of cool, right? But say you started to study Tom Brady and know about him some more, and you knew about his career stats. You knew that he had has 329 career touchdowns and almost 44,000 yards of offense. He's the second highest QB completion record, uh, the most touchdowns in a season, uh, the highest completion percentage, the best modern career winning percentage, the best touchdown to interception ratio, and all those sort of things. Would that perhaps help you to be a little more interested in Tom Brady? I think so, if you're a football fan. Are there any Tom Brady fans here? Everyone's just kind of looking at me blanks. Okay, thank you. Just wanted to be sure. <laughs> I thought I was in a hostile audience. I know I'm in New England. It shouldn't be so. But, but say it went even further. Say that you had an opportunity to, to meet him and get to know him. Maybe, you know, for some strange reasons, somebody bought you season tickets who's his friend and you got to meet him and you got to, you got to enjoy box seats and spend time with him and became your friend. Say that through that friendship, he invites you to the Super Bowl 2013 that the Patriots will be in, right? And, and, and you're at the Super Bowl and you watch the game and this is your friend. This is your favorite sports hero. And the game is over. And you get to go down the field with Tom. What's your reaction going to be? Hey, good game, Tom. Uh, hey, do you know it's going to snow tomorrow? It might snow tomorrow. No, you're going to be like, yeah, high fives and stuff, and maybe doing a dance and stuff like that. I mean, I would. Um, we're going to, we're, you know, it affects us. What we know about something affects us. And, and that whole story is to illustrate this fact that if the Magi have reason to rejoice exceedingly with great joy, to bow down and fall down and offer their very best to the Savior, how much more reason do we have? Because we know about the Savior. We know who He is. We study Him in the Scriptures, and we know Him personally, and we know He wins 
in the end. And so this is a call to us at Christmas time and all the time to be joyful, expressive, resourceful worshipers. To rejoice exceedingly with great joy. I don't want to go to heaven and have the Lord say, Paul, you were more excited at football games and movies than you were at church. Because I have so much reason to rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Or to say, Paul, you were more excited about things that went on here or there in politics than me and what I was doing amongst your church and around you. I don't want to see that happen. I don't want to see happen for you. And so the call here in this text, and if the band could come up as we close, the call here in this text is to be like the Magi. And to be like the Magi this Christmas. To not be like Herod. To not be one who is consumed with self and what I'm going to get or not get this Christmas. Or how I'm going to feel on Christmas Day or not feel. But instead to get our eyes on Jesus. And what will give you the ability to be worshipers like the Magi is not by simply picking yourself up by the bootstraps, but considering what a Savior was born on Christmas Day. And how great He is. How worthy He is. How merciful He is. How wise He is. How capable He is. How good He is. And that you belong to Him. And it's getting rooted in those truths and encountering the grace of God and recognizing I don't deserve to have him as my king. I'm more like Herod than the Magi. And yet in his mercy, he's reached out and touched my heart and changed my life. And I'm forgiven. And now I know him, the one who is the resurrection and the life. And I have him. And get a hold of those truths and let that compel you. And then get everything out of the way that would be a barrier to rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. Perhaps take some steps some steps towards that worship. For some of us, that means maybe, contrary to maybe what you have experienced, but in line with the Scriptures, maybe you lift your hands on a Sunday. Maybe just next Sunday, your simple step will just be to move your hands from this to this. You don't have to do that. We're not going to make you do that. But let's rejoice exceedingly with great joy, and that's a proper expression. Maybe there's other ways to, to be a worshiper like the Magi. Maybe for some of the young ones, this is, could be your, your first Christmas instead of thinking mostly about what you're going to get. There's nothing wrong with enjoying what you get. I don't mean to take that away. But to say, what can I get others? What could I get my little sister or my older brother or my mom and dad? To be like the Magi. Maybe for some of us, there's... That Christmas bonus that you got and you're thinking about what you're going to get with that Christmas bonus. Whatever it might be. And there's nothing wrong with getting things with Christmas bonuses. But maybe the Lord would ask you to lay it down at his feet somehow. There's lots of ways to do that. Give to a worthy charity. Give to a benevolence fund here. Give to needs here through us. There's all sorts of ways. But let us be like the Magi. Let us be so affected by this one who has been born that we too rejoice exceedingly with great joy.
we too fall down. We too offer him our very best. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and who you are. We thank you that as we behold who you are, even just a little bit like the Magi, but we have so much more review through your word, through your work. We ask as we behold who you are, because of your grace and your transforming work, we would be like the Magi. Rescue us from being like Herod. Forgive us. Forgive me, O God, for ways that I have more resembled Herod than the Magi. Free us from that. Thank you for forgiveness and freedom in, in you, Jesus, your blood and your resurrection. And now grant us power to be worshipers this Christmas. For the fame of your name we pray. Amen. Amen.